0: Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we pronounce French words incorrectly, and uh, we also talk with experts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life about uh, all of their expertise. I love thinking about cool stuff, so you're invited to come think with me. On this episode, uh, it's a really, really, really special one. They're all super special, but you guys are going to lose it. Um, I have with me Dr. Timothy Williamson, and he is the Wickham Professor of Logic at Oxford University. We're going to be talking about his book, The Philosophy of Philosophy. I love it. I'm really excited about it. He is a legend for anyone in philosophy. You know, this guy is like world renowned, very, very good philosopher. I just grabbed some of the books off of uh, the shelf. We have uh, Philosophical Method, which is a, a nice little intro to um, philosophy and philosophical methods. It's very good. I recommend that one. Also, Vagueness, if you are uh, looking to be stretched a little bit, um, that's a very good book, but it is uh, taxing. It is very. Very good and very tough reading. Um, so I commend those books to you as well. Before we jump into the conversation here, we're gonna be talking about philosophy and philosophy of philosophy, but I want to thank everyone over on Patreon for becoming uh patrons and making this podcast happen. Um, if you have enjoyed this podcast, if you like it, if it's your top five, top ten, then please consider becoming a Patreon patron and supporting the program. Now uh without further ado, let's bring in Dr. Timothy Williamson. Dr. Williamson, thanks you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast
1: sure pleasure to be
0: here <laughs> um as we jump in on philosophy um i wanted to just ask you how, how did you ever get interested in philosophy
1: oh um well actually i i had a a great uncle who was a kind of um amateur philosopher i mean he was a, a businessman who'd had to um stop his formal education at quite early on to to go out and uh, earn some money for his family but um but what he was really interested in was was philosophy and psychology and even published some things in that area and when i was very small he he drew me out i mean i don't know that he ever used the word philosophy to me i was but but i think he was uh talking about sort of philosophical things and um i mean there was a long time when i actually wanted to be an archaeologist but but then uh, somehow i realized that I, I wasn't cut out for the kind of messy practical side of archaeology <laughs> and uh, and i started re- reading um interviews with philosophers and and that sort of thing and and, it, and, and i just thought that was a, a way of thinking that that suited me and i you know i wanted to do the same thing
0: that's awesome. Well, the world is better for it, and uh, and I definitely appreciate the fact that you're uh, not an archaeologist today. Maybe you were, would have been a great one, but I...
1: no, I don't, I don't think I I don't think I was cut out to be an archaeologist at all.
0: <laughs> That's good then. Um, I wanted to ask you, like, what is philosophy? And, and initially, um, so what, what can we define it? And what do you make of the etymological definition, uh, the love of wisdom?
1: Yeah i I don't think it's terribly helpful, although it sounds good i mean it's not very clear what the greeks themselves you know who came up with that uh, phrase uh, what they understood by it because at the time that they were using the phrase philosophy included not just what we'd now call philosophy but for example what we'd now call physics mm. um and and so you know the, if if we start thinking of wisdom as being something like you know just a, a guru um telling us what to do with through weird metaphors or something like that. I don't I don't think that's uh really what philosophy has been about for most of its uh its history. Um and and I think it also it doesn't it, it doesn't convey the, the way in which philosophy is it's a kind of systematic sort of inquiry and and it's one where um, whatever anybody says is open to criticism. i mean it, it's you know it, it's not above criticism by right. by other uh philosophers and and so it I don't think it conveys the the way in which this is some kind of you know joint enterprise in which a lot of us are involved yeah. in which you know anybody in principle you know can um can participate. I mean, I think it's it's hard to give a really good. Uh, definition. I mean, it's kind of obvious that you know, if we're talking on about the the abstract um, concrete dimension, then it's towards the abstract end. If we're talking about the general particular uh, dimension, then it's towards the general end. On the whole, but but philosophy can also be um, about about very applied things. So, for example, philosophers you know discuss um, whether um, you know voluntary euthanasia is 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 morally uh, permissible and you know that's a pretty concrete uh, <laughs> kind of question so i think it's in in a way it might be better to think in terms of the kind of um different intellectual skill sets that different people have and you know philosophers have some somewhat distinctive Uh, skills i mean they're not they're not radically different from what other people have but they have it's a kind of different package and with different emphases and and so you know the questions that those skills can be productively applied to are philosophical
0: questions yeah okay that that's really helpful if we said something like philosophy is the, the philosophy is arguing your, your way closer to truth um, does that emphasize what's the role of arguments in philosophy is it uh, is philosophy arguments like is that is it making arguments or is there is there more to it than being able to argue your case I guess
1: well it's I mean definitely his all, all through its history philosophy has uh, or, um, or Virtually, has involved arguments in the sense of uh, reasoning. Uh, no. I, I mean, it's m- m- there have been a few people who just sort of laid things down, and and you uh, <laughs> had to take <laughs> them or leave them. But 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 oh, but going back even to, to ancient times, r- reasoning has been a central uh, part of uh, philosophy. Um, but of uh, course, I mean, somebody can be. Um, can have reasoning skills but but some you know just use them in a sort of unproductive logic chopping way so um mm-hmm. you know i don't think you can be a, you know a good philosopher if you don't also have you know some sense of what's a productive direction to go in and you know and and most of the the possibly all of the great philosophers um have been ones who were who were able to um, to construct you know, a a systematic view of the world in some way, and um, and I I don't think any of them have really been able to uh, to prove um, by pure logic that their their view was uh, correct, but they've they've been able to support it in. In a somewhat less direct way, by by showing how much it could explain and and so on. So and that that's involved. That involves reasoning because because when you're explaining things, you're reasoning from you know the the, the theory that you're using <laughs> to do the explaining. But um, but it's uh, it, it's not it's not as we're trying to to prove um, things beyond any possible uh, doubt. And you know, and I don't I don't think that that you can expect philosophers to produce sort of, you know, com- utterly knock down hmm. arguments. But I mean, that's, that's actually the same with, with other sciences. I don't, I don't think philosophy is worse off in that respect Then,
0: Okay. Yeah. That's really helpful. Um, there's this, I don't know if it's a modern, is a, a newer trend, but there's this trend in philosophy, uh, at least, and I've seen other places as well. But to, to add an extra meta to things, so there's meta metaphysics, like uh, David David Chalmers edited a book, meta metaphysics and meta epistemology and and uh, meta logic. And I was tempted to think, well, this book is a is a project in meta philosophy, and then in the in the opening. You say you don't like the word metaphilosophy, and I loved your reasoning, and you convinced me uh, of that. At least in in case of, of philosophy, can you just go over what why you kind of reject the idea of of metaphilosophy or that that uh, term, at least?
1: Yeah, I mean, I th- it's sometimes a, a convenient term to use just because it's it's short, but I think it's a bit misleading because it suggests that that metaphilosophy is something outside philosophy itself, mm-hmm. um, but but. That is not what metaphilosophy is. Metaphilosophy um, is philosophy reflecting on itself, and and so I the the reason I call my book the philosophy of philosophy is to emphasise that that we're still doing philosophy, and you know, and that's important because it means you know when we're considering, for example, philosophical knowledge, then then that's part of the the theory of of knowledge and and when we're considering um the for example the the, the kind of the metaphysics underlying philosophy um we're still doing metaphysics uh, and and so you know we, we we're not escaping from philosophy and kind of being superior to it or something like like that we're just we're just do it, we're using a certain way of thinking and applying it uh, to itself, you know, in the same way that that you can do the, the sociology of of, the, of sociology or
0: something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I really like that. I thought that was fantastic. Um, so this brings me to this point. I'm 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 studying philosophy myself and I'm trying not to become um, a snob, uh, an, an academic snob, because I, I'm doing this work and I want to demarcate philosophy. And, and I get this temptation to say you're in and you're out. Uh, who, who gets to be called uh, a philosopher?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's it's tricky because, you know, to, to some extent, this is just a matter of, of who works in a department that's called a philosophy department, you know, in, in a university or some other kind of institution like that, which, which obviously is not a, a very helpful uh, definition. Um, and you know, I, I hesitate to say that anybody who um, who calls themselves a philosopher is a philosopher because you, I mean, you do get you know, for example, um, in, in certainly in Europe, you often hear um, soccer managers um, talking about their you know their philosophy of football and right. and that sort of thing and. Um, I, w- while there might be some philosophy to be made out of football i, d- I doubt that they're the people to to do yeah. it they're just talking about how they lo- like to organize their defense or something but um so you know i th- I think um again it's it can't be anything very uh, precise but um but you know we, we can we can talk about you know, some paradigms of uh, philosophers and and say well the, the if these people aren't philosophers nobody nobody yeah. is and um you know and and I think that there would be uh, you know some uh, some agree I mean I mean I think probably more or less everyone would you know agree that 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 Plato and Aristotle for example were were you know they're central cases of, of of philosophers and yeah and I guess these days um you know people would be would be pushing to you know to say well and uh, but maybe we should be also including as paradigms you know some philosophers uh, for example from the indian tradition and and, yeah. and that would and i think that would be perfectly reasonable too uh, of course it's a tradition i, I know less about <laughs>
0: sure yeah that that makes a lot of sense i i thought maybe we could also talk about um like maybe, maybe you don't even like this question but who 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 would you take to be like the best philosopher of the of the 20th century and and best will be you know relative to whatever you have in mind there
1: yeah, well, I, I, I'm. I, I don't terribly like the sure. the question. I mean, partly because I don't know the the answer. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, I think I think probably it, you know, if you were to conduct a poll, you'd find that the uh, I mean, not usually the people who come out on top are um, Ludwig Wittgenstein and Martin Heidegger, and mm-hmm. and I think if 20, if they are the best that 20th century philosophy has to offer then it was not a good century for, <laughs> for, for philosophy um, yeah. but because i you know i mean of course that the, they were it very powerful and original minds but i don't i don't think that they've really left a, a legacy of you know some kind of robust way of doing philosophy that that is um is still Workable. I mean, of course, their followers would would angrily deny that, but I but I, I do think that's the way it's it's panning out. I mean, you know, there are there are people um, that one can mention that I you know I think um, probably made more lasting uh, contribution to to philosophy as you know a systematic inquiry. I mean, for for example, um, Bertrand Russell. I think. Uh, you know, somebody that one might mention as a really intriguing case is um, the Cambridge philosopher Frank Ramsey, who died mm-hmm. at the age of 26, having o- already made absolutely outstanding contributions to to philosophy and uh, mathematics as a branch of mathematics called Ramsey theory. And <laughs> um, and and also uh, to economics um, and um, you, you know, and he, there would be more in a single sentence of Ramsey's than in a whole book by most other people. Yeah. And and so, you know, it, it, it would be one couldn't really say that he was the greatest philosopher of the 20th century because he just didn't have time. But, you know, if he'd lived another 20 years, I, I think um we might well be talking about him as the greatest philosopher of the of the 20th century.
0: Okay, yeah, that's that's excellent to hear that. I'll have to go check out some more of his stuff. When when it comes to the greatest living philosophers, uh, I, I won't ask you that one because it's a little bit awkward. But I've I've heard from folks that uh, I hope this isn't isn't too awkward for you. But many will point to you as as the greatest. Uh, and the greatest is even weird. I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry for putting you on the spot here. But I'll, also like Mike Humor and I think a lot of the reason. For, for picking out you or humor is because of the scope that you guys uh, have that you, you're you able to talk about so much in philosophy. And I, I think that's a really admirable thing. Um, it's not just like world building per se, um, but it's just that you guys are experts on so many different things and that you're able to touch on it. And so um, just just uh, appreciative of you guys that, that you give us the rest of us kind of a vision of hey, we should be touching on a lot of different things. Maybe not. Maybe it's not a norm, but it's really cool. And I, I would like to do that as well. I'd like to have a broad scope. Um, so, so thank you for for being a model for the rest of us. Oh
1: well, yeah, and I, I should say I d- I really don't think that there is any obligation on people to to work on lots of different things. I you know I think it's it's totally fine if mm-hmm. if people work just on they just have one thing that they work on and they do something really really good on on that um you know it, it is it, it is um a matter of of quality not yeah. not, not not quantity i mean yeah. I, somebody else that is maybe worth well it's definitely worth mentioning is i i think is uh soul uh kripke who's sure. um you know definitely um one of the the best uh the best living uh, philosophers and has made an enormous uh, contribution um, from the ni- late 1950s uh, onwards. But but I also think it's it's worth saying that I mean this kind of adds to something I said before that um, I mean I, one thing that I that I really aspire for philosophy to to be um, is something like a science although not not exactly a natural science and and i think the more scientific it becomes the the more um it also becomes something that really depends on you know a whole community of of researchers and you know although at, at any one time you know that there are obviously Um, some names will be much bigger than than others but you know it it's something that I'm I've experienced very much for example looking at the at the history of logic in the 20th century where, where it's kind of clearer than in most branches of philosophy you know who's been making a contribution I mean you know who proved something that nobody else had proved and you know although the, I mean, there are some absolutely outstanding names. I mean, you know, who are you know whose contribution was philosophical as well as as mathematical, like um, Kurt Gödel and sure. Alfred Tarski, and so on. But but it's also clear that there were an awful lot of people who who really made very significant uh, contributions, and um, and that the you know, as again, although some people's contributions are bigger than others, often the, you know the, the great contributions they did depend on uh, earlier work, but maybe by lesser-known people that, and you know, and they couldn't have done what they did if the uh, people before them hadn't hadn't done the, the, their part. So, you know, it's it's not this is not just some kind of, as it were, um, you know, sort of egalitarian dogma. It's just something that when you, when you look at the the history of it, you know. it. As you were, relatively objectively, you, you see that um, a lot of people were involved in you know the,
0: the important developments. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that's really cool because um, then it doesn't have to be like a a, a, a competition necessarily, but but it's a, a collaborative effort, and uh, that even can, can help you um, if you do focus on one area. Uh, you don't have to feel self conscious about that. That's your expertise, and you get to share that with someone else. And you go to someone else for help in uh, linguistics, or over here. And, and yeah. t- together, we can kind of lift uh, the the tide. The rising tide lifts all ships. So I, I like thinking of it that way. That's really cool. I, I wonder if we can include uh, continental folks in that. If if continental, if the analytic continental divide, first of all, uh, is that like is that passé? Is that uh, Not really an important distinction anymore, or does that still pick out something uh, important in the way that that people do philosophy? I
1: I I think it would be wrong to say that it's uh, passé because it 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 still has uh, you know at the at the very least it has some kind of um, sociological reality, Um, and um, you know some some people um, live. You know, in a in an intellectual world where Slavoj Žižek is a towering figure, right. and and other people live in an intellectual world where where he, he's he's a nobody, <laughs> and um, so so what I think you know what what you can't really do is, you know, just give a you know definition of analytic and continental in terms of you know what what doctrines people accept or what style they they work in but um because for example you know wittgenstein um is you know a, a fairly central figure in the history of analytic philosophy but when you look at his work especially his later work in in many ways you know it has the kind of um stylistic character that you'd associate w- with with continental philosophy i right. mean it's uh, it's much it's uh, as it were these are in some sense you know all, almost works of literature you know they're, um they're not works of you know um tight argument. um and and so so I think that I think there just are, still are these in different intellectual uh, traditions i mean there are there are you know there are crossover figures between them but there have always been crossover. Uh, figures and yeah. um you know and and it's it's kind of tough because it's there's a a competition for scarce resources like jobs <laughs> uh, and 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 there are um there are uh, there are genuine differences uh, in intellectual values um yeah. so, which i mean i think i think it, there's a tendency for for each side not to know very much about the what the other is is doing in in detail Um, but it's but it's not as though once you know as soon as you expose people on one side to what the other side is doing they think oh this is great that you know we 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 should we should be talking all all along i mean i I mean i'm afraid you know in in both directions it's often that, that prejudices just get reinforced by, by exposure. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's, it's not, it's not something that has, has totally uh, disappeared by any means. Uh, yeah. you know, if you're a sociologist, you would just have to take account of this, this distinction. I mean, okay. Philosophy profession.
0: That's that's yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I think of, I think it was maybe, was it Derrida and, and Searle, uh, someone, there was a, there was kind of a, a conversation. Uh, uh, yes. I, was that right it was a derrida and Searle?
1: yeah and it was about it was about um austin um on how to do things with with words and yeah, and yeah There was i mean it, it was a, yeah a kind of um a, a, a highly re- polemical
0: debate <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah
0: do is there any possible is that a gap that needs to be um that needs to be uh bridged or or is it fine to just let the analytics do their things and the continentals do their things? They both kind of serve a purpose, or should there be kind of a unifying like let's 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 bring this stuff together a little bit? I I uh to, to jump on that a little bit, some people will, will claim that continentals ask the right questions, but maybe don't give meaningful or clear answers, whereas uh a critique of analytics, at least popularly, is that they don't really ask the important questions, but they they, spend, they give really clear answers to questions that no one's asking. And I know that's totally not true, and I'm in the analytic tradition myself, but that's kind of the, the characterization I've, I've heard from folks. Um, what do you make of that?
1: Well, I, I think it, it's um, it's pretty clear that, that, I mean, to give a characterization like that of analytic philosophy, you, you just have to n- not know much about what's been happening <laughs> in analytic philosophy over the past 40 years. Yes. I mean, because, for example, you know, very basic questions uh, um, in metaphysics have been much debated in analytic philosophy. Uh, you know, questions about what the fundamental nature of um, of reality uh, um, and of, you know, of the mind body problem and so on. I mean, those 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 are discussed. And in moral philosophy, you know, that what I would take to be absolutely central debates about, you know, for example, utilitarianism versus a Kantian approach versus an Aristotelian approach. So, you know, I think it's, it was something, you know, something that you could, you can understand why people might say, have said that in the, you know, maybe looking at analytic philosophy in the, you know, 1940s or 1950s, but it's really out of date. And um, I suspect that, you know that the continental philosophers would say the same about the, the, their the yeah. characterization of of them, and I think it's certainly. I, I mean, the, obviously, it, I mean it is true that the, the on the whole, an, analytic philosophers tend to put more emphasis on clarity than uh, than continental philosophers, who often regard clarity as a kind of um, a some sort of delusion. But but yeah. you know, it, it's also the case that that of course. Um, you know, all, all philosophers are are pretty hard to understand if you make only a very superficial attempt uh, to understand them. And you know, and and of course, people dismissing continental philosophy, you know, have have not spent uh, generally, you know, very very long uh, trying to make to make sense of it.
0: Yeah. Well, so that brings brings me another question about um, the, just the the words we're using here. Uh, I heard in a talk, uh, I've listened to a bunch of your, your talks recently, so I can't pinpoint where it was, but someone asked about like the Anglo-American way of doing philosophy, and you said, that's not analytic philosophy, because there's analytic philosophers in India. There's analytic philosophers in, in Africa, all over the place. Um, but we still say continental, as, as referring to like the continent. Um, are, I'm, I'm sure there's continental philosophers in, in England and in Africa, too. Like, um, yes. Is is it just hey use the name that people are using, or should we come up with better names for these? And um, I guess a follow up too is is people will 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 tie analytic philosophy so closely to logical positivism, and um, and they say it's too it's too closely wedded. You need a new name for analytic philosophy as well. What do you make of the the criticisms of the names we use for these different schools?
1: Well, I think I think the names are misleading, but. I, I suspect that it's just too late to to introduce other names that would really catch on. Um, and you know, the, I mean, the, we talk about continental philosophy pretty much, you know, in in the wake of World War II, which was when it, this divide re- really became quite marked, and uh, and where. I, british philosophers in particular would you know would be thinking of french and german philosophers uh, yeah. you know as the continentals and uh, and i think where they associated the um what they find as the obscurity of of those traditions of of philosophy i think they they associated them with um the uh t- totalitarianism that that well that had had just been defeated on the, in in germany but of course was also you know was also uh, the stalinist uh, regime in the soviet union and um and of course you know it, it it was true that that um heidegger was very seriously implicated in in nazism so yeah. so that, that that's that's where that characterization um comes from but of course i, I mean you know many people would regard um, Gottlob gotlob frege as one of the um the, the founding figures of, of analytic philosophy and even if one you know doesn't push it as far back as as that i mean the the there is this can very important connection that you've mentioned with logical positivism and logical positivism you know was something associated particularly with the the vienna circle and you know with with you know a key figures like um rudolf carnap um and And then it was just, you know, a a matter of you know historical contingency that the um, well, the the, I mean the 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 logical positivists they they tended to be you know um, secular uh, and um, which put them in opposition to the the church, which you know in in Central Europe tended I mean the Roman Catholic Church tended to be on the side of the of the. The right, and so they were on the on the left, and, and of course many of them were also Jews, and um, and so it was it was basically Nazism that that drove logical positivism out of most of of continental uh, Europe, and and those those people, the ones who could escape, um, went, went mainly to the United States and transformed you know, American philosophy, and and also had some effect on. Uh, on British uh, philosophy. So, I mean, it it, it was that relatively late uh, divide, you know, as a result of historical contingency. But, I mean, you know, as I say, we're stuck with these labels. I don't think there's much point in changing them. I do, I mean, there's actually a, you know, an attempt, well, not just, as it were, a single attempt, but but there's a kind of revival of interest in logical positivism, Hmm. um, you know, within analytic philosophy um, but it's certainly not something that you need to go along with. In fact, I, I regard myself as a, a diehard opponent of, of the yeah. revival of, of logical uh, positivism. But and I, I think, as it were, by most people's standards, I would count as a, an analytic philosopher. Even <laughs> I don't, I don't like conceptual analysis or the idea of conceptual analysis. But I, I mean, I, it just seems like, um, you know, too too pedantic to to insist that I have to be called something else. Or, I mean,
0: because I'm yeah. so obviously in that that tradition. Yeah. Well, that's great. If only we had like an like an authority, like uh, you know, professor, maybe a Wickham professor from Oxford that could just tell us the right name. Maybe we'll get you and Slavo together on the podcast and you guys can come up with brand new names and we can all just follow you guys. But for now, yeah, we're stuck with those ones. Um you, you brought up conceptual analysis and um this was actually one of the reasons I, I got into philosophy because I was studying um, theology and I wanted to get clear on stuff. And I just, I, I come to see that I, I love philosophy. Like philosophy is what I want to do, but a big um, turnoff for me originally was the linguistic turn that, that you talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually I loved the, the uh, intentionality in the turn, the conceptual turn, but but maybe you can disabuse me of that as well. But um, I I didn't like it. I thought, you know, philosophers kind of punted on their their um their birthright, and they they turned to language instead of getting into the nature of reality. Can you, man? Uh, perhaps I was wrong on that as well. But can you characterize the linguistic turn and the conceptual turn for for uh, the audience and, and myself?
1: Yeah. So, so I th- I think w- what's called the ling- the linguistic turn, which, by the way, it is not just confined to. Um, called analytic philosophy. I mean, you know, in, in some way, philosophers like Derrida also right. were would take you know doing their own version of the linguistic uh, turn. Um, I think it's to some extent just a, a reaction to the, the the rise of of modern science, and you know, and a feeling that that philosophy couldn't really compete with, with yeah. science and that if we tried to set ourselves up as um understanding the nature of uh, reality that we were you know we were just some kind of lazy science that couldn't be bothered <laughs> to do real experiments so we would do thought experiments instead and you know and and that um that, that the you know there's not that there wasn't much mileage in that and um and so you know, they came up with the idea that, you know, to the extent to which there is a, a serious role for uh, for philosophy, it's in, you know, clarifying concepts or something like, or, or clarifying the, the language um, that other people are then going to use. So that, as it were, you know, it's um, the, the kind of Sort of metaphor was that, that, that it, you know, it's, it's science. That, I mean, natural science that you that that uses these uh, all these um, concepts to get knowledge. But the, but it's the, the philosophers who keep the, the the concepts, you know, nice and clean and sharp and and so on. And um, <laughs> you know, I think that was it was kind of an attempt to construct a, a job description that we could fulfill you know on a rather pessimistic view of of what our abilities uh, are and you know and i don't i don't think that it's um one that's particularly helpful to philosophy because you know uh, we, we may be polishing all these instruments but the but the scientists aren't most of the time they're not really taking any notice of, of us so that you know okay. it, and and if they if they want to get their their, their terminology in good order. That's something that, that they'll probably do them, themselves. Um, so you know, and I, th- I think the you know some of, some of the time this was this was treated as a matter of you know philosophy in some way dealing with with language, with um, the as it were, the, you know, improving are they. Um, linguistic instruments and and some of the time uh, you know it, it, people re-describe that as as well we're not you know because they would point out look we're not particularly interested in the difference between let's say the the English word red and the French word rouge so so you know so let's say that what they have in common is the concept you know of, of, of red uh, that they both express and then we're dealing with. With concepts, um, and and so that was supposed to give us something that we were able to um, to do. But as I say, it's not it's not it's a way of kind of actually rather marginalizing philosophy, both within science and within uh, culture. And I also think it's actually um, unwarrantedly pessimistic about what it's possible to do with the intellectual techniques that we have as philosophers and I, you know i think when when people sort of look at um physics and think well we you know we we can't compete with them because we, we we're not doing any experiments we're not making measurements and so on uh, i mean they forget that another extremely successful science is mathematics w- which actually does use the same kind of in some ways the, uh, the same kind of um you know, armchair methodology that um, that philosophy does. It, it, mathematics is not done by by doing experiments or by measurement or or, or whatever. And although, of course, it, mathematics is much more formal than philosophy, I I think that then they're, they're not so far apart. Um, and you know, and I think with with sufficient care, one can actually carve out a, a role for. philosophy that is genuinely investigating some very general and abstract aspects of of reality itself so you know so i don't think there's really any need to to take the, the linguistic or the conceptual turn you know in order to find something that we're actually able to do better than other people
0: well that's that's what i appreciate about you so much you you put uh you put olga in the armchair right on the cover yes and it's just like this throwing down the gauntlet saying you know, you can interpret it in different ways or whatever. It's maybe in the eye of the beholder. But it's like this is what we do, and not, we're not afraid of armchair. We can say armchair. Ar- we have good armchair methods, and so does mathematics. So if you want to throw out philosophy in the armchair for philosophy, then you're throwing out a lot of mathematics too. And no one can do that because you need your math for your science that you're yeah. using to criticize philosophy. And so, I love it. I I appreciate it. It it like it bolsters my my love for philosophy and uh, and encourages me that I. This is a good. This is a good thing, and I, I it excites me um, it, about the the process of philosophy as well. So I wanted to get in uh, even even more deeply on that. Uh, um, so I, I pulled out a couple of main themes of the book, um, and you say mm, the, a common assumption a common assumption of uh, the common assumption of philosophical exceptionalism is false. And at first, that was kind of deflating for me because I just said how I'm excited that philosophy uh, can be exceptional. But you have a particular meaning of philosophical exceptionalism, and actually, by saying it's false, you're you're bolstering philosophy. Can you help us understand what 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 do you mean by philosophical exceptionalism, and then why you think that it's false?
1: Yeah. So this is related to what we were talking about uh, before. You know, a, a lot of philosophers they they want to Present philosophy as just radically different in kind from pretty much any other form of inquiry, um, and I mean sometimes they they, they do that with a, a positive take and sometimes with a negative take. So um, the you know the 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 positive take would be well, w- philosophy is the one. Kind of uh, inquiry that whose job is just to to clarify concepts, and and that's our uh, that's our job. It's and um and all all the all other kinds of inquiry, they're just basically applying the concepts. Um, so that's that would be a you know that would make philosophy radically different from everybody else, um in in a good way. But you know, of course, you, you also have a lot of people, including Wittgenstein, who are I had a very dark view of philosophy and. Um, you know, that philosophy was, was just, um, you know, some kinds of maybe, you know, perennial confusions that were led into by, by a superficial uh, um, way of, uh, of thinking about our language or something like, like that. And, um, you know, whereas he, he wasn't, you know, so c- concerned with with at- attacking you know all, all sorts of other disciplines. Uh, uh, I, yeah. mean, I mean, I guess he wasn't so happy with with the rest. But 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 you know, often, the, you know, I mean, there are a lot of philosophy-hating philosophers who you know who who love to go in for you know sort of public self-flagellation right. and um and, and you know and talk about you know how uniquely bad uh, philosophy is and you know how we, we we don't have proper questions unlike you know everybody else and so on and right. uh, and i think that that these uh, i mean that, that there's a kind of um there's this kind of narcissism about about both the positive and negative i mean you know if we can't be you know special in any in any other way we'll be specially bad and <laughs> um and you know I, I think when you step back um and and look at philosophy and compare it with what goes on elsewhere. you realize that the the differences are are really not that that great, and you know i mean so for example you know, um you know if you take something like philosophy of physics the uh the questions that the philosophers of physics are asking are very very closely related to questions that are being asked by theoretical physicists, and the the questions that philosophers of um language are asking are are very closely related to i mean sometimes the same questions as questions that are being asked by by linguists and you know and that's that's true over you know a whole lot of areas and so you, you you realize that the philosophies I mean every every discipline is a bit different from every other discipline, but, right. but but with philosophy it's it just differs in those kinds of of ways. Um you know, I sometimes think that the maybe the, the differences between theoretical physics and experimental physics might be greater than the differences between you know yeah. metaphysics and, and physics. Totally.
0: Yeah. I agree. I think that's great. I, I love pressing that with, with some of my friends there. Um, that's fantastic. There's um okay. So when we, when we press on this philosophical exceptionalism, we say, look, this is false. Like we're, we're, we use uh, a lot of the same methods. You know, we, we can, we can like Peter Lipton too. We can, we can go in for inference to the best explanation. We can use that in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And then uh, on the other side, I, I bump into like the demarcation problem for, for philosophy and say, well, then what, what doesn't count or we're mixing and mingling, do you do you do you have um do you hold the idea of uh first philosophy by like george bieler is there are there is philosophy autonomous in any way like is there a domain of philosophical inquiry that's that's outside of the scope of of science
1: well i, th- I think philosophy is science but but just not natural science okay. so so anything that's f- philosophy is is it's self in 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 a very general sense within the domain of philosophy but yeah i mean i don't i don't think that we are kind of essentially you know beholden to um to any other area so that as it were that you know that we just can't we can't get on with what we're doing um until you know until you know we just have to wait for the for the scientists to kind of give us the answer okay, and and then maybe we could you know maybe we can kind of um popularize <laughs> their answer or, yeah. or or put you know or maybe generalize it a bit i you know i think it's just that um you know with all all, all disciplines um depend at various points on other disciplines i mean if you know if you're doing um history um you know you, you may you, you may need to to use dna testing and you know and so so you're you're using scientific expertise um like like that and um and in you know, in philosophy for example if you're doing the philosophy of time you know you definitely have to to think about um you know, einstein's theory of special relativity and, and what that might tell us uh, about the distinction between past, present, and and future. So you know, but, um, but I don't think that w- that we're as you were, unique in those ways. And sometimes, sometimes it goes the other way. So, for example, you know, I I, I know a, a philosopher of um, biology who who was actually started out as an evolutionary uh, biologist, and and he got interested in, um, you know, in various kind of Theoretical questions about, you know, the, how you define fitness, so that sort of thing, and yeah. um, and then and he he was just looking to, you know, as a biologist to find out who'd written um, interestingly on these topics, and and he found that the, the best the best work that he, he could lay his hands on on these issues. Uh, was by Elliot Sober, the philosopher of science. And so that's how he, I mean, he got into philosophy. So, you know, I think, you know, we can take something from biology, but biology can also take something from us. And, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't think that we should be, as it were, worrying about, you know, where do we draw the line between philosophy and biology here? there's, There's some, you know, theoretical activity which you know is a contribution to biology and is is also a contribution to philosophy and and um that that's fine i you know i think um that you know it's it's enough that that philosophers have you know a somewhat distinctive skill set as i was saying before and yeah. and and we have we have to be aware of that um but you know i think i mean some some philosophers you know who who spend a lot of time with with scientists they they kind of get struck by science envy and and they you know they they, they're just trying to as it were get in with the scientists and be respected by them and by kind of you know maybe rather imitating the way they talk and all these kind of things and i you know i think the thing is if we just if we just imitate the scientists we're just going to end up as second-rate scientists but yeah but actually we 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 shouldn't be ashamed of the the skills that we have, you know, I mean, you know, skills in kind of, you know, thinking at at a rather abstract level about, you know, the theoretical possibilities and and so on, and uh, you know, we should those are what we can contribute. I mean, we can contribute by by being a bit different from
0: yeah.
1: the 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 other people that we're interacting with, not not just by uh, being more or less the same as them.
0: Yeah. I was listening to a, a talk you gave um, on mathematical philosophy and philosophical mathematics, I think is the title. And at one point you just said like, it's okay if uh, this question or or this uh, this solution falls within both categories. And I thought, yes. yeah, there's no, I don't know why we think there, there's some overdetermination problem that this thing falls within a couple different scopes. That's okay. That's all right. And we're going to have different tools for figuring that out. I thought that was really helpful. And, and on Twitter, sometimes I'll see, uh, some philosophers and they're not, they're not quite self-hating, but they, they prioritize, uh, working in labs and they say, you know, how, how can I work in a lab? I want to be a philosopher in a lab. And what's been so encouraging with this book is that, uh, this might trigger some folks, but the armchair is just as legitimate as the lab. Uh, it's, it's, it's the philosopher's lab or it can be, you know, we can be everywhere, but I was just really, really encouraged by that. So I wanted to, to go in on some of the defense, uh, a defense of, of the armchair I, I kind of think of you as an apologist for philosophy and maybe that's a maybe that yeah. you don't like that terminology but I really I really think you're the defender of philosophy here so I want to talk about vagueness and Mars you talked about this in one of the oh, early yes. chapters yes. Um, oh. w- was Mars always either dry or not dry it's <laughs> just so fascinating
1: yeah so I I mean of course that that question by, by itself it, it you know might be might not seem very interesting at, at all. I mean of course if you know and if one's um was just convinced of, of the law of excluded middle that everything either is or isn't the case then it's then it's it's very trivial to to answer. But I mean the reason I um I I discussed it was because um I, you know I this was in relation to the idea that that philosophy is, is in some ways kind of it, engaging you know that it's really concerned with language um and um and so I, so i took the example of of vagueness because it's a case that you know that i know about having having worked on it quite a yeah, bit but a bit, um, yeah. but it's also a case where you know it it, it feels initially very much as though we, the questions we're asking are questions about language mm. um but you know what I, what i argued it, Was actually, if we take a a question like this, was Mars always either dry or not dry? It's just, it's just a question about um, Mars and dryness. Um, It's it's not, it's not a secret way of asking a question about language. But at the same time, once we start thinking about issues of vagueness, like let's suppose that 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 Mars was once not. not dry and then it gradually dried out and yeah. so you know then then you of course you realize that there was will be a time when it was you know maybe a borderline case of dryness where it had almost dried out or whatever and um and so you know a lot of a lot of people will then start saying well we can't really use you know classical standard logic um with a True false dichotomy in this kind of case, but you know because it's borderline and these these concepts like dry are not defined for these cases and and so they'll they'll be saying well we so we I mean some of them will be drawing the conclusion that we can't say that Mars was always either dry or or not dry and um, and so you know the discussion will take you into Questions which genuinely are about language, um, but I, th- I think fundamentally, that the, well, the most basic questions we're interested in here are, are not about language. They're really about um, the, the the world. It's just that when when we're doing when we're thinking about the world, we 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 in philosophical ways, of course, we do that using using words and and you know and we've. We better understand how these words are working because if we don't, und- you know, if, and if we don't understand um, how our language is working, we're going to mess up when we try to to theorize. Um, and so I, you know, I compared this to um, astronomers who, I mean, they're, they're, they're not, they, you know, obviously what they're interested in is not their own telescopes for the sake of it, but right. they have to do really serious. Uh, study of their own telescopes to make sure that their telescopes, you know, are working the way they need them to be, and so on. And but that's all still fundamentally in the service of finding out about um, the stars and <laughs> um, black holes, or you know, whatever it is that they that they're interested in. And and so I was suggesting that that pretty much that the same thing is going on in in, in philosophy that. Uh, that we have to study our own instruments um, yeah. in order to 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 use them properly and to and to um, not, as we would, be tricked by 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 ways in which they're they're working. And so, you know, the idea was, you know, even in a case which makes it, which where it's sort of maximally tempting to say that um, this is a question which is not, although it's not overtly about languages, is is. is Basically, about language, just to say, no, that's not what's going on. Um, it really is a question about reality, but but we we're not going to be able to answer it properly unless we also study the language that we're using it, it, in trying to answer the question and in asking the question.
0: Yeah, and I think that's such a it's such a great a great case because you didn't take a, an easier one; you went right with one that looks like this is just this is just language, and, and you showed that it's not, which is is a great tactic. Uh, I, wh- what do you think of that though? Like when you, when you, if you were to answer the question, um, would you take, uh, I think your answer would be, um, there is a, a point where, where it's dry and then it's not dry, but it, yes. it might be an epistemological problem for us and we might not yes. be able to solve the sororities paradox ourselves.
1: Yeah. So, so my, I mean, my answer to the question, was Mars always either dry or not dry is yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But but then if somebody asked me, well, of course, uh, you know, in this case, there's also a lot of ignorance about the actual history of Mars, you know, of ignorance of a, of a, just a straightforward scientific kind. But, um, but, you know, even if we, we had um, a a completely accurate graph of, you know, the, the, um, amount of moisture on, on Mars, um, over time, you know, we, we, we still wouldn't be sure when, when to put, to put the point at which it it became dry. Um, but, but in my view, that's, that's just a kind of rather predictable ignorance Mm -hmm. about, um, about the, um, the cutoff, uh, point. And, and it, I you know, we don't have a, a way of settling the question, but that doesn't mean that, that it doesn't have a, a right answer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. That's, that's, that's awesome. And we saved classical logic in the, in the process. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we don't have to get, go into subclassical or anything like that. Um Okay. That's great. Well, so I want to move on to uh knowledge of metaphysical modality. And this one is, it's so tricky for me, and I, I really, really appreciate your your work in the book here. I should mention again, if I haven't, this is the second edition, folks. So I believe this came out in September twenty one. So uh, if you don't yep. have it, if there's a lot of new material. It's really cool. So chill, check that one out as well. Um, how is how is metaphysical modality different than than strictly like logical modality or nomological or physical uh, modality? Is it is it like halfway in between, or, or how do you how do you think of that?
1: So this is a little bit tricky but I, I don't actually like the idea of logical modality okay. um because uh it's basically because um logic is to do with um logical consequences to do with sentences and you know w- w- I, it, it you know and whether a given sentence is a conclusion a valid conclusion from some other set of sentences and it's actually really important that um that you think of it in terms of sentences because logic you know it's, it's generally agreed that logic has to do with with form yeah. um and you know and the form depends on the actual words that you use you know so that for example um you know if i mean let's take a a pair of of synonymous words like furs and gorse which are actually just two different words with the same meaning for for a a certain kind of of bush that that is quite common um in especially in in scotland um and and so you know if you take the sentence furs is not furs that's a that's a logical contradiction but if you take the sentence furs is not gorse um that's, that's not a contradiction. I mean, it, it isn't, it's, it, it actually can't be true, because first, of course, are the same thing, but it's not, but it's not, it doesn't have the form of a contradiction, and logic is concerned with form. And, and so, um, you know, when we're talking about modalities, which are things like possibility and necessity, and so on, we're really concerned, you know, when we're not, we're trying to abstract away from the actual words to, to the sort of propositions that they express or something like that. And, Um, And and that but that's taking us away from purely logical questions. So I I want to put the sort of the idea of logical modality aside, because I I think although it's quite people often talk about it, I I think the idea is not really um, coherent. Um, So I, I would think of metaphysical possibility as just the broadest. Kind of objective possibility. I mean, so the kind of possibility that doesn't depend on you know what we think or know or, or anything. And yeah. um, and so, um, although this is a little bit controversial, you know, oh. m- most most people think that um, the that metaphysical possibility is somewhat broader than say physical possibility because yeah. physical possibility. Um, I mean, the, as it were, the, that depends on what the laws of nature are, and and you know, most people think that the laws of nature could have been different from what yeah. they are, and if if they'd been different, you know, a world in which they're different, it's not it's not physically possible from our standpoint, but it is metaphysically possible, and mm-hmm. um, and so. And so, metaphysical possibility is the, is the kind of the broadest one of these. But we're still, you know, when, when we're talking about metaphysical possibility, we're not talking about language. We're we are just talking about how things could have been. You know, how far things could have been different from the, the way they, they the way they actually uh, are. And um, a lot of the time in in philosophy really what we're interested in is it's 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 not just whether something holds in the actual world but whether it holds as a matter of metaphysical necessity
0: yeah yeah okay that that that's good that's really helpful um i think about um there's like paradigm cases where people talk about metaphys- uh, metaphysical modality uh and they say well you couldn't be born two different parents and still be you um is that a is that a modal truth or is that is that physical? What do you what do you make of like that well, kind of paradigm one? It
1: it's kind of it's not really something that you could get from the physical laws. I mean, they don't you know they don't the physical laws don't say anything special about you know w- w- whether uh it would have been new in in some you know other circumstance. Um, so that's that's something which, for example um Sol Kripke in naming and necessity claims is metaphysically necessary it's, it's yeah. necessary in the highest degree um as he puts it um i'm i'm not so sure whether that's the case i mean you know i th- i'm inclined to think that that it is it has some level of necessity. It's not. Yeah. It's not just something that is true by by chance uh, in our world. But but I, you know, I, I think it's it's not clear that this is something which could not. I mean, that your parents, you could not have come um, from different parents, and um, and the kind the kind of arguments that push in the direction of as we're being very um liberal about what what counts as m- metaphysical possibility is that you know things could have things could have been a little bit different
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but if they had been a little bit different then it could have been a little bit different from that and so on and then you get these sort of long sequences of uh possibilities um of possibilities you know a little, a little of small small differences adding up to very big differences um and I mean one I mean some people try to to handle that by just saying well there are things which are possibly possible but not possible but but I yeah. think that goes against the idea that metaphysical possibility is the absolute the, the widest kind of objective uh, possibility and so so I th- you know I think I mean it's not something that i i have a very settled view on but i think there are definitely some strong intellectual you know pressures towards thinking that that that, that is not that, as well one's origins are not necessary in the highest degree um i mean i you know it, it that's a it's a controversial issue at the, yeah. at the moment and but um but i you know i think I think Kripke's claims, as I say, I think they're true of some level of necessity, but I'm not sure that they're true of the highest level of necessity.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's that's good. Um so how how do we come to know uh, modal modal truth, truths, truths of, of metaphysical modality? Um and, and this is this is cool because this is like getting back to the armchair stuff. Um is it is it just conceivability? Are there other methods that we have? And and is it even conceivability, I guess?
1: Yeah, so I I think Putting when people put it in terms of conceivability, they make it sound as though we've got this sort of weird cognitive capacity, which is just sort of geared to metaphysical possibility and mm-hmm. um, and nothing else. And then you kind of wonder, well, how did how did humans evolve to have this special, you know? Cognitive capacity for homing in on metaphysical modality because it's not as though um, there's an awful lot of you know fitness associated right. you know uh, uh, from an evolutionary point of view with, with kind of knowing about um, about metaphysical possibility. So I mean, the way that I, I think it's better to think of it is is to think that what we really have is just an ability. To deal with um, with counterfactuals um, of all kinds, but mostly much more practical ones, you know, so mm-hmm. that you, you can you can think things like, um, you know, so if if I hadn't stayed for for that extra drink, uh, I could have walked home in the in in before it got dark, and I wouldn't have got lost, and you know, or something like like that, and. And those those are um, questions that 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 we have some capacity to you know to address in the imagination. But 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 imagination here d- does not mean something that's just you know any kind of wild fantasy being as good as as any other kind. Because I mean, obviously, one's not going to learn. Um, much from that but you know I, th- I think a much better way of thinking of the imagination is um th- that it's uh, you know a faculty which allows us to um basically to run cognitive processes offline you know mm-hmm. i they're taking input you know not purely from you know what we're perceiving but um but from uh, you know maybe a scenario that we imagine and um and this is this is actually very important um for for decision making because you know when when you have to make a decision make you you, you know you're choosing between different options and you need to know well w- what would happen if i took this option what would happen if i took that option and you know and so you so you need to be able to think through the consequences of different options and um and thinking them through in the imagine and you know often Trial and error is often, you know, is often not appropriate because you know these may be things where you know if you, I mean, I like to give the example of trying to jump across a stream. You know that if if you if you try to jump and you know let's as assume this is a kind of rushing stream that you know if you if you don't make it you, you get dragged <laughs> you know, so it's badly, costly, injured.
0: yeah, very yeah. costly. So, um,
1: so that you have to you you, you kind of run this. Exp- the simulation in the imagination to work out what would happen and to work out whether you can get across and um and you know that i think that we we do that uh quite a bit and uh, you know if you're thinking about you know moving to a new apartment you know you want to you know to judge would i be happy living here and and so you have to kind of as it were in some way run a simulation to to yeah. judge whether. and um and so you know i, I think that the you know, these cognitive capacities, which maybe, you know, it, when we do them online, we're using them to predict what's going to happen next. When we're using them offline, we're using them to predict what would happen next if we took such and such an option, if we went left rather than right or whatever it happens to be. Um, and, you know, and so, you know, I want to tell a um, a story about, you know, that's kind of evolutionarily plausible about the, the cognitive value of, you know, um, being able to, to to do these sorts of uh, offline simulation in the imagination. And, and and then once we've got this capacity to uh, assess just kind of ordinary counterfactuals, I, I think you, you can apply it to um, special counterfactuals um, th- which are closely related to, to metaphysical modality, you know, because, it, because when we're saying, if we're saying something like, um, you know, well, it, it, you know, so let's take the case of whether your parents could have been different. You know, if, if I'd, um, if I'd been the, the son of Ludwig Wittgenstein or something, you know, how, what would, what, um, what, what would have been the, the, the case? And, um, and I think, um, so, you know, sometimes you know, our just our usual capacities for developing these, you know, imaginative uh, simulations will lead to a contradiction, um, and that's and, and those are the cases where 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 we're basically being told that the scenario is is metaphysically impossible. Yeah. Um, and um, and so. You know, I mean, there's a, a, a lot of detail has ha, has to be filled in, and and actually, you know, there's a, I go into you know yeah. quite a lot of detail in the in the book about about that, but but that's the basic idea. So you know, and again, it's a kind of anti-exceptionalist thing. It's you know, don't think of it as a special power of conceivability mm. that. You know that somehow, you know, we were magically given to enable us to to think philosophically about metaphysical modality. Just think in terms of something that it's you know, evolutionary plausible that we would have, like the capacity to to think about you know counterfactuals kind of about w- what would happen if, yeah. and then see how once you've got that, you can you know you can apply it in may- ways which you know maybe weren't originally intended, but which are still you know, legitimate to, to cases that, that in fact give you something like, like metaphysical uh, modality.
0: Yeah, this is, this is really fascinating. Uh, So we, we talked about, um, you know, popular uh, level philosophers and and such, and many consider Jordan Peterson to be such. He's got this book maps of meaning from the eighties and and he does a very similar move where he says evolutionarily it uh, we we were mapping our environments and it was, it's costly to go out there because a tiger could, could eat you. But if we, once our frontal cortex grew and such, uh, we evolved um, the ability to abstract, uh, to, to make abstract maps in our mind, and, and then that was kind of the the tide, and it, and it raised up everything else for us to think about mathematics and such. And I uh, recently, I I, um, I I tried to apply a certain type of evolutionary argument against naturalism from from Alvin Plantinga. Um, This this philosopher Thomas Crisp raises it just for just for what he calls abstruse metaphysical beliefs, and he says, um, if if our if our cognitive capacities were designed by uh, the evolutionary process for uh, abstract map making or for counterfactual thinking, like like you're you're going in on, um, then they might we might have a reason to doubt them in the more abstruse in the more abstract um, metaphysical. Uh, musing's reasonings because they weren't designed for that um, that exact function. Uh, what do you make of, of that kind of charge that uh, we the probability that they accurately tell us about metaphysical modality might be inscrutable because it, it's not what they were designed for.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I think it's overly pessimistic. I mean, after all, yeah. um, you know. Uh, None of none of our basic cognitive capacities were um, selected for for living in large cities uh, mm. because you know there, there haven't been large cities for very long. <laughs> right. But nevertheless, you know, um, lots of them are you know work perfectly fine. I mean, you know, we we, we can still you know find our way about large cities, um, you know, using them and um you know so to, i mean an ex- one example to to think about is um you know is is logic which um you know logic it didn't it kind of it, it's not plausible that it evolved you know so that we would know logical truths you know things like you know everything either is or is not the case because by themselves you know the, the, these the, these things you know have only very um, uh theoretical interest but yeah. um but but logic did surely evolve bit to enable us to do things like you know reason that you know if if the, the the rabbit went this way or that way or the other way and it didn't go this way and it didn't go that way then it went the other way which is actually uh, i mean you know it's a bit of useful reasoning from contingent uh premises to a contingent conclusion but it's it's a, it's a perfectly good uh, logical principle called uh, disjunctive syllogism. Um, and then it just turns out that the um, the, the logical uh, principles that are good for uh, reasoning from contingent premises to contingent conclusions are also work for, um, they, you know, they just, as well, the simplest principles which do that will also handle... Mm. Um, the uh, re- reasoning to, to necessary truths, and um, you know, and I think that it's, you know, it, it's it's just overly skeptical to mm. to, to think. Well, um, you know, if if we've if we've never applied them to this case before, then how do we, you know? And if this case hasn't arisen before, then how do we know that that they're going to work here? Because yeah. you know, th- basically with with all our cognitive faculties, you know, every situation that that we're applying them to is a bit different from you know from all previous situations. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, if, if you know, it's just a matter of of in a way of how narrowly you individuate the situations when you say we've never been in this situation before. But right. you know, I, I think that um, I mean the appropriate thing to do is to. Is to, to use the the faculties that we that we have, and uh, you know, and it's when it's when you you start running into serious problems that mm. that you that you realize that you, that you may have gone too far, and that you then have to to draw back. But you know, I think that's that's a kind of lesson from you know how science works. That w- what what somebody like Descartes tried to do was to um to do science in a way where everything was going to be absolutely certain and you know and and you were just guaranteed yeah to not that if you as long as you followed his his rules that you would you know that you that you would you would be able to do science without making any errors and mm-hmm. you know and i think it's it's really clear that that you can't get anywhere in science unless you're willing to take some risks and mm-hmm. you know and so I think the you know a, a much more appropriate attitude is um, well you know let's let's just go ahead with, with our with the cognitive faculties that we have and um, and and see how far we can get and and if we if we get into trouble that will be the time when, when we when we we know that we have to start backing off and qualifying and okay. and so on um, yeah. but you know in the case of well, in the case of classical logic, my view is that it never takes us into trouble, and I yeah. and I think that these you know these imaginative powers that I've been talking about. I mean that they, they they're certainly not at all infallible, but but I mean they do pretty well, and and there's no there's no really positive reason to to think that that they somehow suddenly you know go haywire when it comes to the to the cases where metaphysical modality is at issue
0: yeah okay that's that's really helpful sometimes i think about that when i'm when i'm driving my car a little too fast and i'm i'm always amazed like why why should i be able to handle this speed it, it, why yeah. don't i just faint and pass out i my ancestors didn't have to go 80 miles an hour on a highway like what's yeah. going on and i'm always I'm, I'm i'm amazed by that here and there maybe i shouldn't drive so fast by the way but um just th- this one. This one might be too far of a rabbit hole, so feel free to pass on it. But I thought about the ramifications for, um, for the foundations of logic here. Um, so if logic does tell us about uh, mod- modal truths, and and um, I, you're, I think you even have a book, modal logic as metaphysics. Is that yes. the right title? Yes. Okay. Right. So, um, why should logic tell us about the nature of reality? Uh, if it's not like foundational to it, if they're if we're not like Platonists about logic, um, I actually I, I need to read that book. By I'm really um, excited to read that book, but I I haven't yet, so I actually don't know um, how you would ground uh, logic.
1: Yeah, I so uh, my my view is is that, which I think you know one can actually it actually comes out of the seminal work on on the logical consequence by, by Tarski in the 1930s yeah. i mean so it, this is not as it we're just um you know something that i've i've concocted ad, ad hoc but but when when you look carefully at, at what Tarski's account is saying it, it really what it really tells you is that logic is is just to do with um, incredible generality I mean but it's um that's logical generalizations I mean they're just you know they're things like you know everything is identical with itself and everything there really means everything and, <laughs> um and so that they're they're already um engaged uh with with reality um, and you know and, and when we start thinking about modal logic which is you know logic of, of possibility and necessity and so on we're really just doing the same kind of thing but 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 while talking about possibility and mm-hmm. and necessity and um and so you know the, the, the these logical principles i mean that i mean many of them are ones that, that as it were, we find pretty natural. I mean, like the idea that everything is identical with, with itself, but, um, but of course the fact that we find them natural is not, you know, that's not an absolute guarantee that they're, that they're true. Um, but I think one, one thing about them is just that, um, they, they're so general that, you know, if they were wrong, it should be pretty easy actually to come up with counterexamples because you know um, yeah. the because you you know they're not about some very limited domain. I mean that you know and they're pretty simple, so you know finding a counterexample should not be that that hard. Um, and, and of course, some people I think wrongly think that they have found counterexamples <laughs> them, you know, in the case of vagueness or or whatever. But um, you know, in my view, the um, really the, the case for these these principles um is 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 just that that they you know they have this enormous um explanatory power you know not not by giving causes but by just by unifying our um our knowledge and and that that we' i mean i mean logic plays of course it, it plays a central role in mathematics and mathematics plays a central role in in natural science and so you know, that means that, you know, in a way, whenever we're doing um, mathematics or natural science, we're, we're also testing out logic. Um, yeah. you know, and if, if there was something wrong with logic, um, it ought to come out in these in these applications, because, you know, it, it, after all, you know, people have been using um, classical logic, it, it, you know, as the background form of reasoning for for mathematics for well over 2,000 years. And yeah. it, it actually hasn't led to any real trouble. Um, yeah. So it, it's, um, th- these are incredibly well-tested yeah. principles, you know, in a way better tested than, than any any principles of, of physics and, um, and certainly at least as well-tested as principles of, of mathematics. Um, you know, and so, so I, you know, I think, I think they're pretty um, secure, uh, um, but, you know, it, it's not, it, it's not kind of, you know, illegitimate for people to question them if they want to. I mean, I don't okay. think there's any kind of transcendental argument that. that I was we'll... just going
0: to ask you about yeah Aristotle's uh, maybe transcendental uh... argument for uh, non-contradiction, but.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You see the, the thing is, Aristotle, you know, Aristotle was sort of thought that, that, you know, uh, violating the law of non-contradiction was the th- that was kind of the ultimate no-no of, of, of <laughs> rationality, and right. and that that if we um, if we encountered somebody who was willing to assert contradictions, then we just you know we just couldn't make any sense of what they were saying. But I mean, right now there there is Graham Priest um, who uh, who thinks that. Some contradictions is true. I mean, he'll t- you know there's a particular paradoxical set, the Russell set, and he'll tell you that it's both a member of itself and not a member of itself. And, <laughs> right. uh, and the thing is, you know, I mean, I know Graham Priest, and you know, by by normal standards, he's an extremely rational person, and you know, you can have uh, an intelligent conversation w- with him. There's there's no special difficulty in understanding what he says and so on. And so, you know, I think so. I think the idea that that you know contravening some law of of logic uh, in rejecting it or you know going against it, it that that's somehow makes people uh, unintelligible it it's just it just turns out to be a mistake we we actually um you know we're, we're much more flexible in interpretation than mm. than maybe aristotle thought that w- that we can kind of handle or almost any kind of local deviation from from orthodoxy and and still Communicate in, in a sensible way, and so so you know there's, 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 there are no principles of language or intelligibility which which say that you've you've got to accept laws of classical logic.
0: Yeah. Um. Do you so you're you're um a classical logician, uh, if that's right uh, nomenclature. But do you do you think that the principle of explosion is True or, or holds does does anything follow from a contradiction?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that um, it you know any, anything whatsoever follows from a contradiction because that just means that if um, you know if the contradiction is true, then all these other this other stuff is true, but the contradiction isn't true, so it doesn't matter. And gotcha. and um, so I, I think that the principle of an explosion is completely harmless (laughs) Um, yeah okay it's kind of you know it's almost it's almost trivial i mean it of course you know it it looks it looks dodgy you know when people first see it and you know they think surely we we this would not be a a good thing to to you know to be drawing all these consequences but but actually um logic logic tells you which consequences follow it doesn't tell you that you have to draw them. I, I mean, you can, what you can, I mean, you, what you can do, is, I mean, you know, much, if you've got to a contradiction, rather than drawing all sorts of consequences from it, the best thing is to, is to back off the contradiction and see what, you know, how to get out of it and, and yeah. you know, just not, to, you know, find a way of not, of not going there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that seems rational and, and logical to me. Um, so, you, you talked about how um, we've been using this law forever, and, and maybe even in our physics, uh, if, it's, if it is presupposed or, or necessitated uh, by our, our physics or mathematics, then each time a successful theory goes through, then we have more evidence for the law of non-contradiction or such or classical logic. Um, and there should be counterexamples, though some have proposed some. They're, they're not successful. But um, what is successful has been uh, this thought experiment by by Gettier, or uh, as as we Americans say, or, or Gettier, uh, probably how it's pronounced, uh, for justified true belief, and he's given this really good counterexample uh, to that. And I thought that could be a, a great way to kind of close up here on uh, on bolstering armchair philosophy because because he did it in the armchair. Can you can you go over um, Gettier's uh, thought experiment and then maybe like the the importance of of thought experiments for philosophers?
1: yeah um so so Getty's thought experiment was um it was designed um against what in the 19 well basically from roughly from the 1940s to, to the early 1960s was the kind of these regarded as the standard analysis of knowledge which is and knowledge is um justified uh true belief which where justified means something like you know it, it's a a belief that that you know a, a, a reasonable person could have in those circumstances or something like that um and actually rather rather than than giving um getty's own examples which are there i mean they're they're okay they they work but they're a bit they're a bit kind of contrived mm-hmm. um but you know i think that an easier one um is one that that well actually i'll, I'll give you one that, that that comes up in um ancient indian philosophy because it's you know yeah, it's, yeah. it's, more, it's yeah. more it's kind of fun and and it's actually a bit more natural than than gettier's um, so so this is where um somebody um sees a, you know imagine a, a traveler and they see in in the distance um what looks uh, like a, a a cloud of uh, of smoke, um, and um, and so they, they they believe that you know of course I mean no smoke without fire and so they believe there's a fire over over there and um, and in fact there is a fire over there, but I mean so of course that means they have a justified true belief that there's a there's a fire over there but the the catch is that the this fire um, has only just been uh, lit and somebody's somebody's um, uh, cooking some meat over the fire and um, and what looked like a cloud of smoke was actually a cloud of flies that had gathered you know um, because of the smell of the the tasty meat and um, and 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 the fire hasn't yet started smoking Hmm. Um, so so they completely misinterpreted the the situation because what looked like a cloud of smoke was in fact a cloud of, of flies. So, so you know, the judgment is they didn't actually know that there was a fire there because, you know, they, they just misinterpreted the situation, but they did have a justified true belief uh, that there was uh, a fire over there. And so that's a, that's a case where you have justified true belief, but you don't have knowledge. And therefore, uh, you know, and that's a good counterexample to the an- attempted analysis of knowledge as justified, uh, true belief. Yeah, um, and so you know, I think it, it's just—it's um, it, of course it's a kind of thought experiment because it's a story. But it's but the story is quite obviously possible. It's something that could could happen. And the person who's defending the analysis of knowledge as justified true belief is claiming that this is that that justified true belief is necessary and sufficient for for knowledge and so you know the mere possibility of something that's justified true belief without being knowledge is enough to to refute the analysis and so so that's that's an example of the the way uh in which you know just by the kind of thinking that one can do in in an armchair or, or whatever they they had in, it, in <laughs> India um the um you know what one one can come up um with you know really compelling uh counterexamples to you know what what you know otherwise might look like a really promising uh philosophical analysis
0: yeah you also, um, you've you mentioned before um, Diogenes, uh, whether this is a, a proclifical story or not, but but um, him bringing up a counterexample to uh, Plato's uh, definition of man, uh, a featherless biped. And we don't actually need to go pluck a chicken in order to do that. You can, but you can do that from your armchair. And you can say, look, yes. is this your man? And, uh, and or you can go to Frank Jackson's uh, Mary without, you know locking some woman up yep. in when painting everything black and white. So I, I thought that was really fantastic. Another thing I thought was so interesting was I think you were talking with um I don't even a a, a theoretical um f- someone in theoretical finance or something like that. And they said um this paper would never make it into our journals yeah. because uh we, we're not interested in counterexamples, but uh in models. And I thought it was really fascinating that we also there's um Counterexamples and thought experiments are not the only tools that we philosophers have, yes. or, or you, you philosophers have um, from the armchair. But but models are important as well.
1: Yeah. So that was it. Was actually a theoretical economist uh, who, who was saying that. Yes. So and um, so economics is is a very strongly model building discipline, and uh, you know, and and there the the reason. That they're not interested in in counter examples is because um th- they know that the, the all the models that they build are you know are full of simplifications and idealizations and so just pointing out that they don't exactly correspond to reality is you know it's not news to anyone and the real challenge um is to um you know is to produce a better model rather yeah. than just showing that the, the the one that we have you know is not perfect because you know nobody ever claimed that it that it was perfect um and you know i i, I mean that's in an economics and of course some people don't like economics because i, I think they actually they have rather unreasonable expectations about mm. how, you know how, how much it can predict but but in fact you could you could make the same point um you know from biology or even from physics because you know all, all pretty much all the natural sciences you know, work w- with with model building techniques and yeah. and they're all they're all used to these kind of uh things so for example you know physicists w- when they're modeling you know a, a solar system that th- they may treat the the planets as just point masses just a you know a mass at, at a single point and um, you know, but, and of course it's, you know, you could say, well, it's, here's a counterexample example because the earth is a planet, but it's, but it's not a point mass. Um, but, you know, of course they knew that all along, but, <laughs> but um, but, but, you know, to, to make progress, you've got sometimes to be willing to, to make, you know, very big, uh, simplifications mm. and actually, you know, so, uh, because I, and I was interested in thinking about it through the, you know, the Gettier cases, you know, and, and their morals from that perspective. And so um, I, I did actually do some work where, you know, I said, all right, let's, let's put aside the counterexamples examples and let's, let's take a, a different approach. Let's do some model building and, uh, and, and have a look at whether the justified true belief uh, analysis of of knowledge is is a good is a good analysis from the point of view of model building and you know and i when you analyze it you find that it it actually makes knowledge of a very weird thing you know just from a model building perspective and so yeah. um you know and so I, I i'm not you know i think the the, the country examples they're perfectly fair against the original claims because originally people were not just saying this is a good model of knowledge they were they were right. saying this is exactly what knowledge uh is but um but i, th- I think you know i think you know it's good to to, to use more than one method and, and where you find that you have several different methods which are all converging you know on the same answer um that's uh, you know significantly more reassuring than when, yeah. than when you're putting all your eggs in one basket
0: yeah yeah, well, just uh, one one final question for you here, Dr. Williamson, uh, and it's about popular philosophy versus academic philosophy. And um, you've you've talked about how a civilized society should have popular philosophy, just as it has popular physics and popular psychology, popular history. But that when it comes to popular philosophy and popular or and academic philosophy, there seems to be kind of a rift going on, and a lot of the popular folks are saying uh they, they speak kind of disparagingly against uh, the academic folks and. I wonder, like, why? Why is that, and how might we um, uh, remedy that situation? And then, uh, on on the popular level, a lot of people take seriously things like the simulation hypothesis from, or the simulation argument from Nick Bostrom, which has the hypothesis as one of them. And a lot of my academic friends uh, kind of poo poo that or, or say that's um, it's it's just a cart revisited. And so there, it does seem. I, I've seen that trend myself. That there's a uh, there is kind of a beef or kind of a fight between the popular and the academic folks. Why is that? And, and how how might we go about fixing that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I think um, it somehow people feel that that philosophy, you know, should be kind of easily accessible to, to everyone. And, mm-hmm. and they don't just mean that, that, you know that, that we should be able to convey some kind of rough idea about what philosophers are doing but that but that really all the action should be you know stuff that that, that we shouldn't be making any philosophical moves that 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 it, you know it, an ordinary person can't you know w- w- with a little bit of explanation and understand and um and it's it's kind of crazy because the i mean nobody would apply these sorts of standards to to you know to physics or biology where right. it, you know everybody understands that there's a lot of you know complexity which you you can't um you, you can't just re, re, you know reduce to you know some simple uh, formulation yeah. um and you know and i think i think often popular philosophers they they actually regard themselves as being more faithful to um the you know the tradition of philosophy than than the, the than the the um the professional philosophers yeah. um but you know i think that's actually that's a real delusion on on their part because you know i mean when you look at the traditionalists go back to plato and aristotle who you know they who would they they would both you know they would definitely want to regard as you know their predecessors i mean th- their works are they're really difficult and you know and and so f- for example you know um plato um apparently had it put on the you know above the, the the gate of of his academy that you know that let no one ignorant of geometry enter here so but right. the, basically he he plato was was saying Look, if you want to do philosophy my way, you you, you better know enough mathematics <laughs> that you can apply mathematical methods, or at least you understand what they are. So, you know, so the idea that that these people, you know, who are just doing um, philosophy in, in this kind of, um, you know, sort of pub style, yeah. uh, they're the ones who have been true to to Plato, I think would have absolutely horrified him. Mm. Um, and. You know, and it, it and it goes along with the idea that that you know that there's no such thing as philosophical expertise um which i mean in in britain d- during the the brexit referendum you know campaign we, we we had one of the 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 um the defenders of of brexit saying i think we've had enough of uh, heard enough from experts here yeah. so i you know i think of it as as we're the kind of brexit um attitude to 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 expertise but um so you know it's 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 difficult i mean i i, I um, wrote um a, a post for the, for the um the daily news um philosophical blog about this you know and and i and i got i I could see from a lot of the responses that Uh, You know, people were very angry about what I not everyone, but quite a lot of people were very angry about what I said. But they were angry in a way which which made me feel that that, 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 yes, the point that I made had definitely been needed to to, be needed making. Um, And I, you know, I I, I think it's I think it's difficult to to know what to do. I mean, I guess, you know, maybe that people have some kind of conception of philosophy as you know, giving, you know, kind of uh, advice about how to live your life. And then they're thinking, well, look, there's no point in giving people advice they can't understand. And and so (laughs) philosophy, you know, should it should be, uh, if it you know, for it to be advice that's useful to people, it it better all be, you know, in terms that they can understand. But I I think that's an, an extremely reductive view of what philosophy is. And, you know, I mean, and again, this was something that um, that Plato himself came up against I mean there was a f- famous occasion uh, I think in Athens where where he was giving you know a, a lecture and you know lots of people, crowded to this lecture because you know they, they thought that was going to help them with you know with their practical lives you know make them happy or healthy or wealthy or whatever it was yeah. and and you know and he and he'd spent the whole lecture talking about oneness and twoness and so they were all complaining about all these you know these kind of all these you know over technical um academic philosophers and you know and, and probably you know saying that that you know that we, we you know that that they needed some other tradition of philosophy then so it's actually not at all a new thing that that philosophers you know who are willing to get technical um come in for a, a abuse from yeah. from the the general general public who you know who have a different conception of what philosophy should should be
0: yeah well that's fantastic that's uh so so philosophy um yeah there's there's Validity to the statement that it's uh, footnotes to Plato, but also the uh, detractors, uh, their footnotes to Plato's detractors as well. So, <laughs> yes. oh, it's been done yes. before. Well, uh, Dr. Williamson, thank you so much for all your time. Uh, this has been fantastic. My, my audience is going to absolutely love it. Thanks again for this book. This book is fantastic. And just as a thank you from those who appreciate armchair philosophy, thanks for, for defending the, uh, the rest of us. Thanks for giving us an example to follow. And uh, th- thanks for all the hard work that you do. I really, really genuinely appreciate it. And uh, we're again, we're super grateful that uh, you're not digging up dinosaur bones right now. <laughs> right.
1: Well, very nice to meet you. And, and, yeah. and, and thanks for all the interesting questions.
0: Yep, yeah. absolutely. Well, folks, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.